You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hitachi Rail. Society is changing, and so is the way we think about mobility. Cities across America have become epicenters for change and transformation, leveraging new technologies and big ideas to adapt to a surge of population growth, demographic shifts, and economic pressures. On July 10th, the Washington Post brought together top innovators, key government officials, cutting-edge urban planners, and business leaders to discuss advancements that are poised to have a profound effect on urban areas and the people who live in them. In this segment, we'll hear from city and industry leaders who are accelerating the use of smart technologies and cutting-edge urban planning methods to transform American cities into urban utopias of tomorrow. Let's listen. Good afternoon. Welcome again to Post Live. Uh, my name's Eugene Scott. I'm a political reporter for The Fix, which is a political analysis blog here at The Washington Post. I'm covering a lot of national politics, so I'm very excited to be able to focus on a nerdy interest of mine, uh, which is cities. I'm a native Washingtonian, and so very invested in this conversation that I want you to participate in as well. You can tweet questions and hashtag Post Live. And uh, I'll certainly go to them and try to get these smart minds to answer some of uh, your questions. But let me first introduce them to you so you have an idea of what it is we will be discussing and with who. Um, Andrew Altman is principal of Five Squares Development. Andy is an internationally recognized urban planner and developer for private and public works, including the 2012 London Olympic Village. He is the chief planner for D.C.'s Anacostia Waterfront Initiative, which framed Washington's iconic neighborhoods, including the Wharf and the Ballpark District. And Kimberly Nelson is executive director for state and local government solutions at Microsoft. She's worked hand-in-hand with local governments to create smart city visions. So, Andy, let's start with you. How do you create a plan for a city 50 years from now? (laughs) Well, that's a... That's a small question. How much time do we have? Well, you know, um, that is the, the great, the, the, the love and passion of being a city planner is being able to think ahead. I think what's so interesting for the panel today is what's happening in cities, as was mentioned in the comment before. You have two massive trends happening, right? Urbanization and technological change that are converging, right? We're going to have more cities built in the next 30 years than in all of human history. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have the explosion of data and new technologies. And these are coming together in really what uh, has often been termed the, the fourth wave of transformation of cities. So you know, we, we, it, things are moving at such a pace that one needs to think ahead about what is the future of our city? What is the future of the role of cities uh, in a changing world where cities really are going to be the solution to climate change, sustainability, where we're going to see a lot of the issues about urban, about inequality are going to be addressed at the city level. So we have to think ahead about how we plan for the infrastructure for the city to, uh, to respond to these changes and to think about how we bring technology in in, in service of what the vision and the future growth of the city is. The technology is not just stand on its own, but technology really is a part mm-hmm. now of how we have to plan our cities to accommodate and meet those challenges. So you sound like you're talking about making a city a smart city. What makes a city a smart city? Well, I think the first thing, there's a lot of discussion about what is smart cities that focused a lot on 
the technology, right? And there's a ton of it, and you'll hear much more from my colleague here today about Microsoft and others who are doing all kinds of things um, in terms of sensors and intelligent systems and energy systems. But I think you can't lose sight of one of the most fundamental things to me, which is to be a smart city and planning for the future, your question, you still have to think about the basics of um, how we get land use, transportation, housing, those basic systems, right? You have to be smart in terms of having a vision about the growth of your city. So what do I mean by that, for example? We need in this country an enormous amount of housing. You've seen a lot of debate about housing. Mayor Bowser has said we need you know, 36,000 housing units we want to produce by 2025, and a third of those should be affordable, and challenge the region for 250,000 plus units. That's critical. That says for the, we have to make smart decisions if we're going to grow and these cities are going to be sustainable and we're going to ad address the larger challenges such as climate change. And then the question is, how do we use technology, transportation systems, better construction techniques and housing, energy systems that can meet our goal of accommodating that growth? But a smart city still needs to make smart decisions and smart regions about their future to be denser, more walkable, more urban, uh, what Christopher Leinberger uh, at George Washington University um, has called this kind of walkable urbanism. That is the key to our future globally, given the growth of cities. Then we figure out how technology, which is a layer to facilitate mm -hmm. that. So cities have to still be smart in how they plan um, and how they get things right, because we have so many barriers to smart growth, let alone to be smart cities. Kimberly, I see you shaking your head quite a bit. Yep. You operate at Great. the intersection of government and uh, business. Mm -hmm. So what role do you think private business plays in making cities smart cities? Well, I, I think it, if you look at smart cities, and, and I agree with what Andy said uh, in terms of it's not all about the technology, right? It's about, for us, how do we create data-driven and collaborative environments for people who are living in a city? And that's what I think private sector companies can bring to the table, is how do you create the right uh, environment so that cities and city officials and city programs can share the information they need to make the right decisions? Because being smart is about having knowledge, right? And you can only get that knowledge if, in fact, you're collecting the right information and analyzing the right information. So that's what I think we can do as, as companies, helping cities achieve that that uh, uh, goal of being a data-driven city. Can you share some of the innovations or projects you all are currently working on to help sure. achieve, achieve those visions? Yeah, so when you look at cities, there are no two cities that are alike, right? There's no cookie-cutter approach to this. This is really working with the city leader and saying, what is the most important thing the city leader and the citizens want to accomplish in their city? So is it about urban mobility? Is it about a safer city? Is it about improving city operations? And once we do that, the ba basically the approach we take is saying there's, a, there's a, a trusted platform that you need that allows for you to share information. And that trusted platform has to be one in government today that is one that is built on security and privacy and meets all the compliance requirements of government. And the reason security and privacy is so important is because we're talking about a lot of data. And when we talk about a lot of data, and we talk about data that is often private data, we need to make sure that basic fundamental of security and privacy is there right, when we're collecting that kind of information. Once we do that, uh, we have a trusted platform that companies, for instance, like Fordham, you'll hear later, 
they can bring these innovative solutions, whether it's transportation or public safety or social services to address the homeless. With that trusted platform, they can bring subject matter expertise to address these most important problems. And then more importantly, once those individual problems are solved, the ability is there to collect information. Because it's very rare where any single problem can be solved with information from one source. Sure. Just, you know, I think that's great. I think one of the key questions for smart cities and for technology is how cities are able to use the data and use uh, to make that available and create the platforms so that you can use that for the public good and also use it to address some of the most fundamental challenges of equity and inclusion in a city. So what I mean by that is I'm a senior advisor at the MIT Department of Architecture and Urban Studies. And one, many of the professors are working on exactly this question, how to take technology to solve some of the most critical urban challenges and urban problems and of the urban poor that they face. So in the South Bronx, for example, there's a significant number um, of youth with asthma. From the data from the hospital records, they were able to go through, through big data and through developing an algorithm, to actually pinpoint where they found that th this concentration of youth were in the South Bronx were coming from just a few blocks and then to able further drill down and find the buildings, mapping that, to right? Connecting technology with urban planning to visualization and then have interventions to go into those blocks and say they had sick buildings mm. and actually go in and intervene with the city, with the housing department. So there are many examples of how you can use data uh, and technology and use that to address many of these fundamental challenges uh, that are facing cities. And I think what smart city can do is not only plan well, but think about how it uses technology, uses its access to data, addressing many of the privacy and ethical issues which are out there, um, but uses that for the social good and in particular to address issues of urban inequality and sustainability. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah it's really, I mean, there's so many cool examples we could all give, yeah, but yeah. I just think that really kind of crystallizes in many ways how cities can, can play in this, in, um, can play a significant role. So, Andy, out of uh, smart cities uh, globally, there there are about 50, mm. but only 12 in the U.S. Mm. What what's <laughs> happening there? <laughs> well, I, go ahead, and I'll. <laughs> well, so you know, there are probably a lot of different reasons, and I think there there are different perceptions in terms of uh, what's important to some of the leaders in Europe and what's important to some of our leaders here in the United States. One of the things that I've recognized, I would say, over the last 10 years is that uh, many of the leaders in Europe really focus on quality of life. That in, in, uh, in, Euro in European cities, quality of life, things like great transportation, things like parks, recreation, and, and the, the kinds of things that foster community are really important to city leaders. Here in the United States, for some reason, it seems that the, um, m many of our city leaders have focused on economic development. Mm. And while in the end you might get to the same place, I, I think, I think the, um, the path to, to that goal is very different. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm starting to see that turnaround where economic development is important, but I think every single person would agree, and anybody, we talked about private sector companies before, no company wants to move to a city or, or create a headquarters in a city that doesn't have great quality of life. Right, right. and it's really hard to recruit people to those places, indeed. Yeah. So I think if we focus on quality of life, 
economic development comes. And I think that's something they've done a little better in Europe than we've seen leaders do here. Who can shift that focus? Is that more of a government responsibility or voters or business or nonprofit? Who, who shapes that? Well, I think, I think the leaders listen to people in their community in terms of expectations, and we're starting to see that change. Mm -hmm. um, so one example, for instance, and you know, we're, we're sitting here today, many of us are looking what's happening in the Gulf, right? Another storm looks mm -hmm. like it's going to hit the Gulf. Mm -hmm. Just a couple years ago, there was a major storm that hit the Gulf. Uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey hit the city of Houston. That and literally was my next question oh, for you. So, yeah. You, well, go ahead. I'll let you ask your question. Great. But we'll act like this was there. <laughs> So, Kim, yes. after Hurricane Harvey, oh. Microsoft <laughs> made a significant investment in the city of Houston yeah. to bolster its smart city tech. Can you tell us a bit about that project? Well, so, so there, there's, there's a leader with uh, Mayor Taylor who had a vision, right? He lived through Hurricane Harvey and the aftermath of that, and that was a bad situation. He was determined not to rebuild the city as it was, but to rebuild the city so that it would be resilient. And he really wanted to create a model for resiliency for cities. And, and he has created one that is really unparalleled in the country today. So that resiliency is one that goes back to this notion of how do we create the right kind of platform so that we can share information and focus on the things that are important? What he felt was important was a resiliency, right? So they don't suffer the same uh, situation that they suffered after Hurricane Harvey. So environmental conditions, better transportation, better sharing of information, more public safety solutions. And we could go into detail around those, but the leadership, it comes with leadership, it comes with vision, starting at the top and understanding how you're gonna deliver something to the people in your community. Indeed, and so are there any ideas that you've seen put in place in Houston that maybe could uh, be implemented in like Puerto Rico or some of the other areas suffering? Well, I mean, it's, it's fun, you know, you mentioned Puerto Rico. Um, Puerto Rico is actually a great example of where, after the hurricanes there as well, uh, we were able to move in and work with a partner, again, another partner that utilizes cloud services, and immediately put in place within a matter of weeks a, a, um, a disaster SNAP program. SNAP is, some people, um, it's the food nutrition program for food stamps. So there were so many people without access to food in Puerto Rico at the time, and there was no way to deliver the, the uh, nutrition program that was required. But within a matter of weeks, we were able to use cloud services and deliver a really important disaster food program to them. Um, in the city of Houston, uh, one, one of the best examples, I would say, of using information and using cloud services, and I think you, you related, Andy, to um, the internet and sensors. So, you know, gadgets, gadgets are the least important thing, right? It's more about the data. But in the city of Houston, there's a school district in the city of Houston, the Aldine Independent School District, and unfortunately, we live in a world where we don't always feel our children are safe in school. Right? So one of the things we did there with technology is uh, using sensors, put alarms in schools, and so that if something were to happen, if there were to be the kind of event you don't want to have in a school or even a medical condition or whatever, the, somebody can hit an alarm, the alarm sends messages out to a 
to a dashboard. People in the school can get immediate alerts about something happening in their building or something happening locally. The first responders get information. They know where the event happened, how it starts to spread, are there medical conditions involved. So immediately sending information. And I guess, I guess that's what's critical is when you have the right information sharing platform, the kinds of things that might have taken minutes are now seconds, hours are minutes, Days may be down to hours. So the ability to get information to people in real time is critical. And, and they're the kinds of solutions I love to see cities put in place that really change people's lives. Those are great uh, solutions for Houston and surrounding areas, but we know Texas is bigger than its urban areas. And so when we have these conversations, I think often about the urban-rural divide. What, what can be done to, to decrease that gap between what it must be like to maybe attend public schools in Houston versus attending public schools in Texas about 100 miles away? Yeah. You mean in terms of, techno in terms yeah. of technology? Specifically. Specifically, I mean, I, you know, I think, um, first of all, that has to be much more just widespread, I think, dissemination of information and working not just with, as you say, the big metropolitan centers, but actually educating the mayors and the leadership of other governments about what this opportunity is and actually going outside and spreading that. And I think that is a role that universities can play. There are initiatives that are trying to do that. Um, I know uh, many universities that are trying to work with their local leadership because it's very hard, you know, and I imagine with smart cities that people are getting a lot of products that are pitched at them, right? What about this? What about that? But they really have to understand what the possibilities are for technology. So I think we have a huge education responsibility in terms of trying to do lots of outreach to those communities, those smaller communities, uh, smaller cities that aren't necessarily going to be the ones that are going to get the sidewalk lags coming to them and get the publicity in Toronto or New York or Washington or the growth centers. And I think that is something that um, has to be a very concerted effort. There was a report back in 2016 which uh, was delivered to uh, President Obama at the time about technology and the future of cities. And a lot of it was about the role also that the federal government can play in disseminating that information, mm -hmm. in serving to help coordinate um, and to make available platforms to do that. And that report, I think, is still has a lot of valid recommendations on how when transportation funding and other sources of federal funding are going out, that those can be used as avenues for many of these smaller communities to upgrade their technology, upgrade their infrastructure, and be more advanced in how they um, think about the future of their cities and plan with this technological platform. Speaking of upgrading spaces, we know you can't talk about smart cities without talking about urban renewal and gentrification, mm -hmm. which are huge issues and topics here in Washington, D.C. And so when it comes to luxury apartments, you know, yeah. propping up in places like Anacostia along yeah. the waterfront, spaces that historically have not seen that type of uh, investment, how do you change areas while still making them accessible to people who were there previously or people in other parts of the city who still would like to end enjoy those communities right well that's a really that's a that's a great question obviously it's a challenge here in Washington you're a Washingtonian I'm a uh, developer now in Washington DC I'm fortunate to have been the planning director under uh, Tony Williams when um, growth of the city was not a, a given then yeah. and in fact the, you know Mayor Williams at the time and Alice Rivlin who just passed away recently produced a report about the city should grow by a hundred thousand people mm -hmm. and people thought that was just yeah. absolutely right. Right fantastical idea, 100,000 more people. The city was, you know, had been losing population. 
and it wasn't clear it would be a city that would be one of growth and not either stasis or decline. So, and now you have the challenge of that, that growth. We're past, surpassed that number. Um, and I think things that like what your Mayor Bowser has put in place and what truthfully and Mayor Williams had created this um, source for funding, which now there's over $100 million uh, a year for the affordable housing trust fund that Mayor, Mayor Bowser has increased that in the city council. You have to start putting in place this balancing. Gentrification is happening, right? There are obviously downsides of that, but there are huge benefits of that too in terms of the stability of the city. Washington now, I mean, you wouldn't have thought that Washington on the competition about Amazon's headquarters would be, well, of course it went to one of the hot cities, mm, right? right? Washington remember, was not one of the was hot cities, cool right? City, when no. you were right growing yeah. up, I mean, it was, well, is that a cool city? Now it's, oh, of course, Washington. It, growth wasn't a given. So you're always balancing. So the affordable housing funds, the inclusionary uh, zoning, um, putting in more equitable transportation so that people can get access to jobs and as jobs maybe people be uh, maybe moving around the area. Um, we're working on a project on 14th Street, just very quickly, um, five squares development called Liz, which is with a nonprofit, Whitman Walker Health, on 14th Street. It's a luxury apartment building, it's mixed use, but it's also gonna be the headquarters for Whitman Walker. And as you know, in 1968, 14th Street was the corridor where the riots were, right. and you see the photos. They did something very smart. They said, how do we leverage gentrification, right, the benefits of that growth, to help support their mission as a nonprofit serving the community? Mm -hmm. And they've now, with us in a joint venture, a whole new model, which many nonprofits can do, which is to say, the benefits of that growth, of being on that 14th Street corridor, yes, we'll have our office here, and they still have their clinic just down the street, but they're going to use the revenue stream that's going to come from that. And that's going to help support their mission, not only around the 14th Street corridor, but east of the river, mm -hmm. where they want us to have more service and expand to Anacostia. Mm -hmm. So part of it is how you are both addressing many of the issues of gentrification that people are legitimately concerned about, affordability, rents, displacement, and at the same time also leveraging gentrification when you can to service many of your critical needs in the way that we and Whitman Walker have figured out to serve those populations both um, um, in downtown but also east of the river. So trying to always make those connections and balance having a balanced growth of the city. And to the extent you can use the technology and be both a smart city in how you plan but also a smart city in how you use the technology to help with achieving that more inclusive city, I think that's where the cities have to head. And lastly, with you, Kim, is there a way that you think technology, uh, tech companies specifically, mm -hmm. and governments can come together when addressing itchu issues of gentrification or urban renewal? Oh, I, I, th I think absolutely. Um, we, we provide the tools and the technologies that I think can help um, analyze, in, analyze the data, look at things like public sentiment, right? Really understanding what are people saying in the community? What are they thinking? How do you address their needs? Um, I would reinforce the transportation idea. Yeah. So as you really look at smart cities, I mean, if I were to talk to mayors and say there's one thing that I would address, it's urban mobility. Mm -hmm. Because Brookings did a report a couple of years ago that showed, and you mentioned this, Andy, one of the single most important factors to somebody finding a job mm -hmm. and upward mobility is actually having urban mobility and having mass transit. That's so I think that's how we could work together. An amazing segue considering that urban mobility is next. It is. Uh, it's been so great having you all here and we could continue this discussion. We would like you to continue this discussion on social media with uh, the hashtag PostLive. And now we are going to uh, turn the, the stage over to my colleague, uh, Kat Zarkowski. Mm -hmm. Excuse me for butchering the <laughs> Zarkowski. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.